As we gather this evening for this special Reformation service, our scripture reading from the New Testament, book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read together the first ten verses. This is the inspired, infallible word of God. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading of his word for his own namesake. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The Protestant Reformation marked a return to the essential truths of the gospel of saving grace. It was not a discovery of truth, but a renewed and a widespread focus that shined the light of the gospel in a world that was darkened by religious superstition and perversion. And what God did in the Protestant Reformation changed the course of this world politically, socially, economically, and certainly religiously. The Reformation highlighted the absolute power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although the consequences of the gospel of the Reformation touched almost every part of society, the fundamental issue was how a man can be right with God, how a man can be saved. And the answer to that question is summarized in what have become known as the solas of the Reformation. We have the scripture alone, we have faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. But tonight, as we have the opportunity to remember what God has done in that great work of the past, I want to focus our attention particularly upon that sola gratia, grace alone. The axiom expresses the Reformation, indeed the biblical doctrine of salvation, that everything is of divine grace at every stage all the way from our election to our glorification. Salvation from start to finish is all the work of God. Start to finish. Grace, that unmerited favor, that unmerited favor that God gives altruistically irrespective of man's merits and certainly irrespective of man's perceived merits, It is that which comes from the very heart of God, that flows from the very will of God, sovereign grace. There's something about grace that's amazing. But yet, there's something about grace 
that is fundamentally unattractive to man. For grace makes God big, and it makes man small. And Luther succinctly stated that truth when he nailed his thesis to the wall. Thesis 62 and 63 says that the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. At this point, I'm sore tempted to resort to another of the Reformation solas, Scripture alone, and to develop this theme simply from the biblical data. That would certainly put me in my comfort zone. My specialty is Old Testament studies. But tonight I want to develop this from a historical perspective. And this puts me considerably out of my comfort zone. But I trust indeed that even though this is not a sermon per se, that it will help us and to remind us of the great benefits that we have in that Reformation that we still enjoy to this day. The very fact that over 500 years ago something happened that we're commemorating in this sanctuary tonight reminds us that something stupendous was done. So I want to speak tonight and using the life of Luther and the experience of Luther as the framework of our meditation. I want to think then about grace alone under two broad perspectives, two broad heads. I want us to see, first of all, the gloom of gracelessness, and then something of the good of grace. The gloom of gracelessness. To be without grace is to be without hope. Being without grace is man's worst horror. And this is timelessly true. But 16th century Europe, under the domination of the Roman Church, a corrupt and a controlling ecclesiastical authority, provides for us a casebook example of what gracelessness looks like and how far into darkness it depresses the soul. Considering Luther's gracelessness, humanly speaking, the Reformation fire that began to light the European darkness was sparked by Luther's own experience. And that itself testifies to the necessity of preaching from experience and not from theory. But that's an application, I suppose, for another time. The accounts of Luther's pre-grace struggles are almost legendary, note even by us non-historians. He was born Martin Luther in 1483, and later changed his name to Luther during his university studies at Erfurt. And while pursuing his doctorate in law, his spiritual struggles intensified as he wrestled with the consciousness of his sins against his meritorious efforts. And I want to emphasize that he was struggling with sins, plural, And that later is going to change wonderfully and dramatically to the consideration of sin in the singular. But this was the issue. He was struggling with all of his sins, committing day after day and moment after moment, and then weighing that out against his perceived merits. And it was nothing but struggle for him. It was during his trip back to university after a family visit in 1505, that Luther was caught in that now-renowned and violent thunderstorm that he interpreted as God's direct judgment upon him. And in the throes of terror in that storm, he appealed to St. Anne, that's Mary's mother, he appealed to St. Anne with the vow that he would become a monk if somehow she would rescue him from that storm. Luther survived, and he kept his vow. But life in the monastery only intensified his spiritual struggles, as he devoted himself to doing whatever he could to work off his guilt, 
to achieve some kind of favor with God. He said in his own words, I tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold alone was enough to kill me, and I inflicted upon myself such pain as I would never inflict again, even if I could. It's not surprising that he affirmed that if ever a monk could earn heaven by his monkery, that he was that monk. The sincerity and the fervency of Luther's efforts to earn favor with God by his acts of penance are certainly indisputable. The question that plagued Luther and continues to plague all who rely upon self-works is how much, how much is required to gain divine favor? When is enough enough? And I know that even still, are there not, and perhaps even some of you have experienced that question. When I believed, was I sincere enough? Was I fervent enough? Did I really believe? And we start looking at the wrong end of our faith, wondering if we did enough to please God, to somehow gain favor with God. In the bondage of the will, his famous work, he reflected on those dark and gloomy periods of his graceless life. He said, if I lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether it required something more. What a struggle. What a struggle. Did I do it right? Did I believe right? Did I really mean it? Was it truly an experience that I had then? Do I have it now? And we wrestle, we wrestle, even with that same struggle that so often Luther was in bondage to. But thanks to Augustine and Stoppitz, and most directly to the Holy Spirit, Luther looked away from himself, and the light pierced the darkness. And I'll have more to say about the good of grace in a moment. But not only do we learn from this period about Luther's own struggles and the gracelessness in his own life, but we see also the ecclesiastical gloom that characterized his day. For Luther's struggles were not unique and were fostered by a church into which he was born, lived, ultimately sequestered himself in hopes of some kind of a spiritual resolution. He was a child of his times. And the gloom of the medieval Roman church was the consequence, first of all, of bad theology, and secondly, of scandalous practices. First, a word about the theology. Although the Church of Rome acknowledged the concept of grace, that grace was no guarantee of salvation. Grace was something that was infused at baptism, and that baptism with the infusion of grace put the individual, if I can put it in these terms, put the individual on the playing field in which he can then somehow cooperate with God's grace through acts of penance, through acts of observance of the sacraments, somehow working his way to some kind of a divinely accepted righteousness. This theological teamwork, that cooperation between God and man, is referred to as semi-Pelagianism. It's a synergistic theology that teaches that man inherits from Adam a moral corruption that renders him at worst spiritually sick, but certainly not dead. And this semi-Pelagianism defines sin as conscious voluntary acts. Sin is defined as conscious voluntary acts. Not a condition, but just a type of behavior. And since man was not a voluntary participant in Adam's transgression, he cannot be liable for Adam's guilt and for Adam's sin. He may be theoretically capable of not sinning, 
But because of that corruption that he inherited, not, not in nature, but just this moral corruption in his nature, not actual sin, not actual guilt, but it rendered him susceptible to the temptations, rendered him susceptible then to all of the pressures that would come and make him a sinner. And notwithstanding his sinful urges, because of that infusion of grace that was given at his baptism, putting him on the spiritual playing field, as it were, notwithstanding that corruption, the idea was that he could somehow on his own initiate some good work before God that would be acceptable before God. Sickness, that without further intervention, divine intervention, could nonetheless be initiated. But then God, seeing what man was doing, trying his best, would come and help now. After all, God helps those that help themselves. So man was obliged to do all he could do to cooperate with the sacramentally given gifts gifts of grace to progress somehow to an actual righteousness. He had to struggle his way, doing whatever to earn somehow, to merit somehow justification, to get himself in a place. And this was the whole idea, that man had to do something to get himself in a place where he qualified then for justification, but not without his own efforts, not without his own works that were enabled by that infused grace at baptism, but no inherited sin nature. Now, contrary, yeah, contrary to this erroneous notion of grace, according to the Bible, there's no room And we understand that and we hear that. There is absolutely no room for contribution to or cooperation with God in justifying grace. Grace is free. Grace is unconditional. Grace is not earned. Grace is not congruent with anything within ourselves. Grace and works are mutually exclusive one from the other. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, if there is to be justification, if there is to be justification because we have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that justification must be freely of grace, or there can be no justification at all. And hence the Bible declares, and what a contrast this is, Whereas Rome was saying, you get yourself in a justifiable position. The Bible makes it clear that God justifies the ungodly, not those who had achieved some nebulous, justifiable status. And Luther himself put it this way in his lectures to the Romans, on Romans. The moment I found grace in anything in myself, present in any measure through myself, No matter by what means produced, grace forfeited the right to be called grace. No contribution of self. Grace is sovereign. Grace, I say, flows from the very will, from the very heart, from the very mind of God. No contribution. So that was the bad theology. That was the bad theology that Luther was born into. The bad theology that governed his thinking, that put him in the depression, spiritual depression. How can I ever, how can I ever do enough to somehow please God or even to put myself in a place where God then is willing to help me out? What darkness. But not only, I say, was there bad theology, there were scandalous practices as well. Let me address that scandalous practice that forced Luther to grab his pen and his hammer and his nails. Since baptism's infused grace took care of any connection to Adam's original sin and consequent corruption, every 
baptized Catholic was left with the personal problem of actual sins. How to receive pardon from those specific sins was the stuff, I say, of Roman theology and practice. In addition to getting what they could from the multiple sacraments and getting what they could from penance that was ever directed by the priest, somehow they were trying to undo the effects of those individual sins. And evolving from the dogma of penance was the practice of purchasing indulgences. And this was a convenient means of skipping the steps required in the typical performance of penance. That practice began during the Crusades as a way of evading the draft, if I can put it those terms. Fighting in the Crusades was a form of merit earning, a way to earn some forgiveness for some sins, Not much different from the jihad theology that we keep hearing about today, but again, that's a digression. By Luther's time, the practice of indulgences expanded, and even us non-historians are familiar with the flagrant peddling of those indulgences that were taking place. But as aberrant and abhorring this is to our Protestant senses, It was not questioned by the rank and the file of those that were held in Rome's darkness. Since the sale of those indulgences were sanctioned, indeed they were sponsored, by the Pope who had the key to the vault of grace that held deposits of merit and safekeeping from those who had earned more than they needed personally. The Church controlled the administration of grace And there was enough to go around if the conditions were met. So if the church put a price tag on forgiveness, then the sale was on. And here comes Johann Tetzel, a great manipulator, a great salesman. And Tetzel drew circus-like crowds and offered the available indulgences, good for the impenitent living and even the dead lingering in purgatory, who died before they had earned enough merit on their own. Regardless of the cost, a free pass to sin was a good deal for those that were not wanting to navigate through all the paths of penance. And perhaps even more egregious was his manipulative use of guilt, guilt preaching that were aimed at the emotions to somehow move the purchase of these indulgences. There's one sermon that Tetzel preached from Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And he says this, Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other people screaming and saying, Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, for the hand of God hath touched me. We are suffering severe punishments and pain from which you could rescue us with a few alms if you only would. Open your ears, because the father is calling to the son, and the father and the mother to the daughter. And then often quoted assurance as soon as the coin in the coffers rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Who could resist that kind of preaching? Peace for a price. And this gospel was void of grace, and hence it was not a gospel at all. As the penitent sinner could try his best to work off his guilt the normal way, or he could bribe the church with cash to be absolved. But one way or another, there was no, there was no grace. And the throngs could not resist Tetzel's offer, and neither could Luther. The sale of indulgences became the proverbial last straw for Luther that caused him to formulate those 95 theses that were intended simply first for academic discussion. Not surprising that Thesis 92 expressed his disdain for the graceless preaching that plagued the church of his day. It is a way then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, peace, peace. And there is no peace. Although Luther, I say, was looking simply for a scholarly dialogue, 
Some of his students translated those Latin theses into German, and within a couple of weeks, they spread throughout all Germany. And the gloom of gracelessness was about to give way to the good of grace. Here comes the Reformation. And that brings us to the good of grace. Salvation is by grace alone. Apart from grace, a sinner has no hope regardless of how fervent, how sincere his efforts to merit favor with God are. Luther's pre-grace hatred of righteousness of God is well attested. He says the expression, the righteousness of God, was like a thunderbolt in my heart. When under papacy I thought at once that this righteousness was an avenging anger, namely the wrath of God. I hated Paul with all my heart when I read that the righteousness of God in the gospel, only afterward when I saw the words that follow, namely that it's written that the righteous shall live by faith, and in addition consulted with Augustine, was I cheered. When I learned that the righteousness of God is his mercy and that he makes us righteous through it, there was a remedy offered to me in my affliction. When he floundered alone, he was overwhelmed with the realization of his never-ending acts of penance that could not keep pace with his actual sins that would somehow assuage the divine wrath. It's not surprising that he was so put off then by God's inflexible righteousness. And it's true for Luther, and it's true for every human being, true for us, that left to self, To be measured by God's righteousness is to be without hope, without the possibility of salvation. And Luther's personal discovery of saving grace came through a significant struggle, due both to his own personal disposition and to the darkness of the theological system that obstructed every glimpse of biblical truth. But once the personal struggle was over by grace... He devoted himself to battling that theological system that kept so many in spiritual darkness. After years of spiritual wrestling as an Augustinian monk and a theological student, in 1510, Luther headed to Rome on a pilgrimage in hopes of finding some resolution to his battles. It's an 800-mile journey from the university to Rome, but it provided Luther ample opportunity to prepare himself mentally and spiritually for his experience in the Holy City, as there were shrines and there were monasteries all along the way. But his arrival and his experience in Rome only intensified his disillusionments, peaked after his experience at the Scala Sancta, Those are 28 marble steps that allegedly Jesus ascended when on his way to trial before Pilate. Constantine, in his munificence toward his mother, had those dismantled and brought to Rome, and they became a monument there, and for a price. Pilgrims could climb the steps, usually on their knees, praying the rosary, on their way up, on their way down. And Luther paid the fare, and he took his turn. But he found no peace or fulfillment in the process, and a return home worse for the wear. Entered then the black cloister of the Augustinian order. There he completed his doctorate and then joined the faculty at the University of Wittenberg. In the course of his studies... He had to master the theology of Peter Lombard, who had quoted Augustine. And it was his exposure to Augustine that, humanly speaking, that, humanly speaking, transformed Luther's thinking. Benjamin Warfield, in fact, summarized the Reformation as the recovery of Augustine's doctrine of salvation. It seems strange to me that although he was an Augustinian monk, 
he knew nothing of the theology and the teaching of Augustine himself. But that was the nature of the suppression of truth in medieval Romanism. The core truth that Luther learned from Augustine was that man's problem was not sins, but sin. And if man's nature was sinful, then no amount of penance, those acts attempting to merit and aimed at somehow dealing with individual sins, could address the fundamental need of man's soul. Something had to be done outside of self. Something had to be done outside of self to deal with the root of the matter. And Luther learned that God's grace was the only solution to man's total depravity. What God required was not multiple acts of penance, but a life of repentance. This alone upset the whole superstructure of the Roman church. I don't know exactly when Luther was converted, but his testimony of saving grace and conversion is clear. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating night and day, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel namely the passive righteousness which a merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he he through, through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled the sweetness of the word and the love as great as the hatred that I had had before of the word, the righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul that once he hated, he says, now truly became a gate to paradise. Luther also understood that man's sin nature, this saving faith, was not something that could be self-generated. On the contrary, the ability to believe with a view to justification was the gift of God's sovereign grace. Luther does nothing more really than sums up Paul in Ephesians 2 that we read together. Dead in sin, dead in our sins and our trespasses, by nature dead in sins, by nature children of disobedience, children of wrath, but God. But God who is rich in mercy, by grace, By grace, sovereign, sovereign grace, are you saved? I could put it perhaps anachronistically that Luther was a Calvinist in his view of God's grace. But then we come to Luther's polemic. His private experience led to the public arena. And the battle of truth was on as he nailed his thesis to the door. Indeed, in the preface to the 95 Theses, he expressed that it was out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light that he posted the propositions. And the first two statements cut to the core of the Romish merit-work-based religion as he contrasted the Lord's demand for repentance with the church's manipulative practice of penance. The first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of the believers should be repentance. And number two, the word repentance cannot be understood to mean the sacrament of penance or the act of confession and satisfaction administered by priests. At the very heart, At the very heart was his conviction that the issue was not how to deal with sins, plural, but how to deal with the problem of sin. And certainly the rampant sale of indulgences that put the price of pardon 
was his overriding concern. Thesis 52 sums it concisely. The assurance of salvation by letters of pardon is vain. Even though the indulgence commissary or the Pope himself were to stake his soul upon it, Luther was confronting head-on this graceless religion. But his pen did not dry up after the 95 Theses. He was a prolific writer. His sharp pen was one of the most effective weapons in the battle. And although his writings touched on almost every area of life, every area of religion, every area of the Roman issues, what Warfield branded as the manifesto of the Protestant Reformation, his book on the bondage of the will, is most relevant to our topic of grace alone. For it's here that Luther argued that the depraved, unregenerate man is totally without ability to believe the gospel. Ironically, this theological masterpiece was a delayed response to Erasmus's The Freedom of the Will, which enunciated that semi-Pelagian error that was the foundation to Roman theology. Erasmus attacked Luther's view of the bondage of the will directly, claiming that man had the ability to believe by free choice. The power of man to apply himself to the things which pertain to eternal life and to turn away from them. He reasoned that God and man were partners in the work that contributed salvation. In his preface, Luther commended Erasmus for getting to the root of the controversy, whereas other opponents picked peripheral issues. Luther recognized that Erasmus had identified the real foundational issue of Protestant theology of salvation. The Reformation was all about justification by faith alone. But underlying that was the question of where faith came from. And Luther was convinced that man cannot believe apart from the working of efficacious grace. God pursues those who are to be saved. Luther understood the absolute sovereignty of God in this gracious operation of God who would and could save whomsoever he pleased. In Roman theology, man tried to reach God. In Protestant theology, biblical theology, God reaches out to sinners by grace. By grace. By grace. Are we saved through faith? Now that's a history of Luther from one who is a non-historian. One who found it very uncomfortable in many ways to read the manuscript that I had before me prepared. Not my style. But I wanted to honor the Reformation. I wanted to do something to honor the memory of Martin Luther, who was used by God who was used by God to do a work that we are still experiencing the effects of today. Let me close with just a few takeaways. First of all, from history. We learn that we need to minister, we need to preach from experience. Luther was not a theorist. He preached what he knew. And so it is that a preacher of the gospel today must preach from his experience. I tell my students regularly that as ministers and preachers of the gospel, that we can only give to others the overflow of what we ourselves have taken in. It must be that the word of God affects the minister. And that we then preach from experience. If the minister does not practice what he preaches, he's a hypocrite. But if he does not preach what, first of all, he has practiced, then he's nothing more than a theorist. We cannot, with authority, stand behind this sacred desk and just give 
theories. We trust that it is the experience of every man of God that stands behind this sacred desk that he's preaching from experience. Luther taught us that. We also learn something about guilt manipulative preaching that is still so common. I say Tetzel was a manipulator, a guilt preacher. Feel guilty if you don't buy this soul out of purgatory. And we have preachers today that will heap guilt upon us for not doing this or not doing that. Shame on you. Shame on you. Be guilty. And you work off. You know, we we don't, we we aren't tempted to purchase someone out of purgatory. But, yeah, I've heard preachers say, you know, you're going to be guilty forever if you don't witness to get somebody out of hell. What's the difference? I mean, it's not. Guilt is not a motive for preaching. I grew up, I grew up in a guilt preaching church. Week after week, shame on you. Week after week, guilt on you if you don't do this, if you don't. And all our service, all of our service for the Lord was generated by trying to work off this feeling of guilt. The day that I realized what a free justification is. What a liberating truth that is. What a liberating truth it is to know that by faith, by grace, you're justified and you stand before God as holy as Jesus Christ himself, legally, as liberating. as liberating. So we don't serve out of guilt. We serve what is our catechism? After after you have your misery, yeah, we know what misery is like, don't we? But then there's the deliverance that we have by the grace of God. And what is next? The gratitude. Gratitude is the motive then for service. Let us learn that lesson from the Reformation. And we learn also from history there's a need to have boldness to fight the battles of the day. To fight the battles of today. Not the battles of yesterday. Not the battles of 50 years ago. I, I don't want to say too much here, but, you know, in, in my previous denomination, there, you know, we, we, were, we were fighting the battles of the 1950s. No. The, the battle lines have changed. And we have to be current. We have to know where the gainsayers are and take our stand as conservative Reformed, experiential people, churches, to take our stand for the battle lines are today. Luther saw the battle lines, and that's where he took his stand. So there are some key lessons. There are some key lessons from history, from the Reformation, but also from from theology. Saved by grace alone. That ought to affect the way we present the gospel. You know, there's no sinner. There's no sinner then that hears the gospel that should ever despair that he's too bad. You don't despair that you're too bad because, frankly, you are too bad. But grace, where sin abounds, yeah, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So let no sinner despair that his sin is so great that the grace of God cannot save his soul. No sinner should despair that he can't do enough. Because he can't. What could we possibly do? What could we possibly do? How much would we? It's impossible to do enough. But thankfully we don't do anything because of grace. We don't have to merit grace. You can't merit grace. You can't say, oh God, I have done this and I have tried my best. And, you know, God doesn't really care about your best. You know, we told my kids growing up, you know, you, you do your best. And I'll be satisfied. But God is not satisfied with our best. The very best we have. 
He's but filthy righteous, but filthy rags. Our righteousness, filthy rags. So no, we can't add to it. We can't add to grace. We come. We come as we are. Christ died for the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. So come. You come. And this focus on grace that the Reformation has brought again uh, to our attention, I trust to our experience, gives us that hope to preach the gospel and to tell sinners, you come and welcome to Jesus. And where do you get this grace? Where do you get this grace that we so desperately need? You get to Christ. It's another of the solas. It's Christ alone. It's only in Christ. It's only because of Christ that we have even the possibility of experiencing the grace of God. God's grace is free and God's grace is sovereign, but it's not capricious. It's a price that's been paid for that grace in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we learn theologically that misery and deliverance and gratitude is the way to live by grace. And we should learn as well to let the Bible speak. To let the Bible speak. It's not without significance that one of the other solas is Scripture alone. And had it been the practice of the church to let the Bible speak, in one sense there would have been no need for a Protestant Reformation. I understand that the church is reformed and reforming as it addresses all the issues of the day. But in terms of these solas, in pre-Reformation Europe, had they focused upon what the Scripture is teaching. But they got lost in their tradition. And their traditions that they thought were godly, their traditions that they thought were right, their traditions now trumped the authority of the Scripture. And tradition spoke louder than the Bible. There's always a danger. I don't care who we are. There's always a danger of allowing tradition to trump the scriptures. Our only authority, our only authority is the word of God. It's our only authority. And we need that focus in the churches today. To return Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, return to the old paths. When I was first asked to preach this, My first thought went to Jeremiah 6. Go to the old paths and just preach, but the Lord direct me to this as odd as it was for me. But that's the focus. Let the Bible speak. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to follow what the Bible says. And we live in a day where the Bible is under attack more than it has been almost ever. The hatred, the vitriol, the hostility against Christians, against the church. That guy believes the Bible. Did you see this new speaker, right? What, what, What do they say? Attack against him. The Bible is his worldview, and he's ridiculed and he's attacked. Come on. The Bible, the Bible, the Scripture, is our only authority. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what the Bible says. Follow those Scriptures. The Reformation, the Reformation teaches us concerning these great focal points of the gospel of saving grace. And I trust that 
even you who perhaps are like me, are not in any way historians. Well, take a look at this. I confess this was a stretch for me tonight. But my heart was blessed. I must say, my heart was blessed as I started to look at some of these things that God did through Luther to bring to us Reformation. Do we need that today? Do we need revival today? Oh, yes. Would God? Would God give to us a light that show that light a light that shines in the darkness, as they did in medieval Europe? I don't know. I don't know. Let's pray that he will. But let us stand where we are. Let us stand where we are. On the shoulders of spiritual giants for sure. And fight the battle. In which God has placed us. Amen. Oh Lord. We stand amazed at what thou hast done in years gone by. How powerful is thy spirit. We think of the words to Zerubbabel that the work of God is not accomplished by might or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And that all the mountains of opposition are going to be flattened out as plains before the work of the Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that in our day, while we rejoice in remembering what thou hast done, would have a godly jealousy to see thou do it again. Come, O Lord, reform the church, reform society, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.